to, to not fall away, to keep going ahead, to, to build them up in the faith. And, and, and what's so amazing and what's so obvious, I think, when we get to the end of this greeting is when we look at the context, I'm just going to give a little bit of context and I'm going to give five implications of what this means for us, is look at all the people that Paul mentions in this letter. That it's not about Paul. It's not just about him. It's not the Apostle Paul, the guy wearing the Superman cape that stands on the building and says, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And, you know, that guy that just, he, he, he just never seems to get tired. He, he dies, it seems like, almost every other week, but comes back to life. But the reality is that the, the movement of the gospel and the movement of Christianity in the early church was, was not predicated on one person. Now, granted, we have the Apostle Paul who writes three-fourths of the New Testament. We have Peter, we have John, we have James, we have all these, these writers, but, but there's these unknown, unnamed faces that we have. We don't know a whole lot about, but they're really the people that were on the ground making these churches happen and helping them mature and helping them grow. And, and so, so let's look at just the context for, for a moment and see a couple of things, and that will lead into the, the implications. Is, is notice Paul, he, he, he greets a bunch of people from prison. And, and so very uh, obviously from the, from the beginning, there's some people that are there to actually deliver this letter to the church in Colossians. Now, it's hard for us to even fathom that. So imagine a group of people, uh, predominantly probably illiterate. And so someone comes with a scroll, a letter from Paul, and actually opens it in one of their gatherings and says, hey, I got a, I got a message from Paul. He's in prison, but I want to encourage you with this letter. And they read that letter, and, and, and it becomes part of their life and, and how they're instructed and, and encouraged. And so, so these first couple of people are, are those that are going to make the ministry happen as Paul is in, in jail. So Tychius will tell you all about, verse 7, my activities, a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that my encourage, may encourage your hearts. So, so this, this Tychius character, he's, he's the one, he's on the ground, he's a faithful brother in the Lord. He's there to encourage them, to, to say, keep on going. You're, you're young believers, there's these false teachers coming in, trying to add to the faith. Don't listen to them, but he's there for you to encourage you, that even though I'm in prison, don't fear, don't worry. It's still going to happen. It's, God is still with us. His promises are still true. We see Onesimus. He's a disciple of Jesus as well. He, in verse 9, he's our faithful, beloved brother who's one of you. They will tell of everything that has taken place. So he's going to go back and, and, and report all that, that, that Paul is doing and, and the updates from prison. And it's a little bit different. I mean, I guess in, in, in our prison system, you can visit people at times. But, but they were able to go and actually talk with Paul often and, and interact and hear what is going on. Like, hey, you're going to get out of the joint. Like, what's going on? You know, slide some bread under the cell. I don't know how that works. But, but, but the, the reality was they, they had these updates. And, and Paul wanted to continue to say, hey, I'm in chains, but everything's going to be just, just fine. Go, go tell them. Go encourage them. So we have these men who are on the ground serving this church, helping it build up. Now, remember, this is a region of churches, so it's not just one church, but probably in an area. But there's also these, what we call Paul's associates. And so people that have worked with him arm in arm to to make sure the gospel continues to go forth, to make sure disciples are being made, to make sure that churches are being being planted. And and so he mentions a couple more uh, characters in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And so, again... Another one in jail, still doing the work of the gospel, doing the work of the kingdom. Uh, Mark, the, co- the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have re- received instructions. If he comes, comes to you, welcome 
him. You remember John Mark? He was, he was actually a unifier of the Jew and Gentile mission. There was some, some back and forth and there was some bad blood, but apparently Paul and, and John Mark have come back together. He, he really wanted to see Jewish converts and Gentile converts come together so the, the mission can continue to go, um, go forth. So, so if this man comes into the church, welcome him. He, he wants to encourage you. He wants to, to build, you, build you up. Now, we, we know this, uh, a lot of pressure if your name is Jesus, but Justice, who is also a, a Jewish uh, convert, if you notice that. So in verse 11, in Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. And so there's a little warning in there. That, that these men have come out of Judaism to become Christians, circumcision party, but he says, hey, trust them. These aren't false teachers. These aren't people trying to cause a ruckus or trying to divide things or, or, or cause problems. They're there to encourage you in the gospel and the gospel of grace. So receive them. They're there for you. Now, I would say probably one of the heroes of Colossians, one of the main workers, church planters, that's doing most of this work to encourage them is, is Epaphras. Um, if you remember in, in chapter 1, verse 7, we met him early. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And then Paul mentions him in chapter 4, Epaphras, verse 12, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So there's this, this man who is a, he's a, he's essentially a prayer warrior. He's praying for you, that you would know the will of God, that you would understand this gospel that's been preached and proclaimed to you. You would understand this grace that has come to you. You understand all the implications of what that means, how you're to live your light, life in light of these things. He's faithful. He's a hard worker. He's for you. He wants you to mature in Christ. And then we have Luke and Demas. We, we know that Luke was a physician and a historian, maybe even a personal doctor to Paul. Um, as you get to know Paul, he's banged up quite a bit, right? So it's good to have a doctor nearby um, when you get stoned and beaten and bleeding out. Um, it's, it's good to have uh, someone who has those, those skills. <clears throat> Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And then we see in, in 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha at the church in the house. So, so there's, there, there's some kind of um, uh, house church that is going. This, this person has, has gathered people in their homes. There's brothers and sisters in Laodicea, which was another local church. So you're getting this feel that this movement is not just one little church, but it's, it's a movement in a, in a geographical region. And there's all these different people that are playing a part, using their gifts to build up this thing. Because notice in verse 16, and when this letter has been read among you, so as they get this letter from Paul from prison, and they stand before on a, maybe on a Sunday, and they, they gather, and they begin to read this letter to encourage the church, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So take this letter and go down the road to this other church that's planted there, and then read the letter as well to encourage them, to build them up. So, so again, not just one congregation, but, but multiple congregations uh, in a region. And then, and then notice what Paul says, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So there's, a, there's another letter at another church, and he's saying, make sure that one circulates back, and you can be encouraged by it as well. 
We don't know fully what, what that was. And, but, but you see this, this converse encouragement, right? It's, it's how can I encourage the, street, the, the church down the street? And then that they have some encouragement for us. So how can they bring that to us? And how can I be in, encouraged? How can this church be in, in, encouraged? So, so the whole purpose of this is, is Paul is, 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 is thanking all of these people because they're all playing a part to build up and encourage and help this church be healthy and strong and know the will of God and, and, and to continue on even when false teachers come in, even when things get dark, even when things get, get hard. And then lastly, notice how Paul ends the letter in verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. Now, Paul is not saying remember my chains and feel sorry for me. He's saying Remember my chains because I have chains and I'm in prison because of this work, because of this ministry, because I want people to know this Christ. And I want you to be encouraged and built up. And don't be sad for me because guess what? You're in very good hands. Because I just listed off dozens of people. And what we know from the early church, there's probably hundreds and hundreds of people that we will meet one day in heaven that, that, that didn't write a book of the Bible that, 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 that aren't the, the known commodities in, in Christian history, right? I, I joke about this, but when you think about kids' names, I know some of us, you know, I mean, apparently there's some babies being born around here, but, um, but, but usually you're, you're not naming your child Gaius um, or Aristarchus. I mean, it's, it's a nice name, but, but it's, it's Paul and... It's Timothy, it's Caleb, right? The, the faithful ones, the ones that, well, maybe we can pronounce, but, 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 but you see the, the reality. See, there's these, these unnamed faces behind all of those people that, that one day they're going to be in the front row in heaven saying, we, we suffered for this gospel so that you and I in 2018 could be recipients of that. So, so that because of what they did thousands of years ago, we can now be, be Christians and follow Christ. Because I, I think we forget that often. Like, how many of you had a grandparent that was influential in you coming to Christ? Grandparent. How about an uncle? Brother? Sister? Friend? Right? Neighbor? Pastor? Right? So, so, so what, what is that? Just, just handing down generation to, to generation from these men and these women that were, that were faithful to this message and saying, we want to encourage you and build you up. And from generation to generation, the same faith is being handed down and handed down and handed down. And Lord willing that we would do that for those of us that do have kids or will have kids or, or that we'll hand that down to the next generation or, and we'll hand that generation to, to our neighbors and to our coworkers and our friends and be faithful to what God has entrusted to us. Now, I don't want us to get lost in the historical weeds of these men and these women because we don't know a ton about them. I mean, obviously, Paul doesn't say a ton. He, you know, they're faithful. They're, some of them don't, doesn't even say that. He just says they're there. Just welcome them. But I think there's some significant implications for the end of this letter and the why Paul is writing the way that he is. And I, and I think there's, there's some practical realities in, of things going on, and I just want to name five straightforward ones to you this morning as we kind of land the plane in Colossians. And the first one is this. I think what's, what's laid out here is, is what I'm going to call kingdom-driven prayer. That, that everything we're, we're talking about here begins and ends with, with prayer. 
And I know prayer is a weird thing because prayer, it's one of those things where we know we're supposed to do it and we're commanded in Scripture to do it, but sometimes we're like, is it really doing anything? Like, like, is it changing things? Is it, is it, is it having effects? Right. Sometimes it feels like we're just talking to the wall or talking to the, you know, the the, the ceiling or, or or what have you. But but one thing that's very evident and very obvious in the life of these people in the ancient church is that they were people of prayer. I find it interesting that we don't know a whole lot about the people that Paul just mentioned. But but notice what he says in verse twelve about Epaphras. Who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. But, but, but the one detail that Paul's going to highlight about this, this man who's, who's probably the primary you know, teacher, preacher, pastor, elder in this church, he says, I want you to know that he is struggling for you. He is, he is laying his life down in prayer. He is, he is committed, devoted to this life of prayer so that you would know and understand the grace of God in your life, that you would know the will of God, that you'd be protected from the enemy, protected from spiritual forces. And that's what we, we talked about last week in verse 2 of chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door in the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prison prisoner. Or I am in prison, excuse me. They, they were devoted, they were earnest, they were committed to praying. Praying for gospel opportunities. Praying against the enemy. Praying for open hearts. Praying that they would understand the grace and the mercy that was given to them. We know that the early church was a, was a praying church. Remember in Acts chapter 2, the, the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's poured out, the gathering of the first church, and they, they get together in homes, and, and they, they gather for worship. And what does it say in Acts 2.42? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now that word devoted is not if I get around to it if I have time after binging Netflix for all night. Right? It's, it's, it's actually a, a posture of intentionality. It's blood, sweat, just like, like Epaphras, struggled to pray for you, that kind of prayer. Like, this is part of my life. This isn't a tack-on. This isn't like, well, there's prayer warriors, then there's just me. This is... This is all the time in the cracks of my life, as I'm doing dishes, wherever I am, just constantly just bringing people before the Lord, praying for the things that, that they prayed for. And, and again, I know some of us are just more wired that way and that just comes more, more easy, but, but the early church was, this is just their lifestyle. It's who they are. Just normal Christianity. I love uh, Acts chapter 4, if you, if you jump ahead a couple chapters. Um, so a bunch of disciples get thrown in jail, as happens a lot in the first century. And Verse 23, chapter 4, it says, When they were, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. And then here it is. For truly in this city they, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appoint, anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So he's saying all this suffering, all this, the crucifixion of Christ, you know, Pontius Pilate, they're all just puppets in your game. This is God's predestined, ordained plan. Love that. And they're just telling God this. <laughs> like, yeah, this is what, what was supposed to happen. 
They don't even know what's going on. But here it is, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I had a pastor friend years ago and he's just like, Ryan, let's, I, want, I want the room to shake like Acts 4. Like, that would be so cool, wouldn't it? Maybe a little freaky, right? And, and I, I grew up in California, so you're like, is that an earthquake or is the Holy Spirit uh, coming? And earthquakes are terrifying. But it would be pretty cool. Now, no, I don't think we have to take that literally necessarily or say that's, that's the goal, but the, the posture is they devoted themselves that even when they were suffering, even when they persecuted, they said, God, give us boldness that we can continue to speak the word of God among the people, among our neighbors, among our fan, friends, among our family. They weren't hindered by, by suffering. They weren't hindered by imprisonment. They said, this is God's plan A. He's in fully control, in full control. It was about kingdom driven prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, hallowed be your name. Set your name apart. Make it great in the world. That's why we pray like that. That's why Jesus taught us to pray like that. And and here's what's beautiful about prayer. Anyone can do it anyone from the six-year-old or I should say we have a, uh, our oldest speaking child is three and he's been been praying at the dinner table and we'll just pray and then he'll kind of mimic us and then pray back and uh, it, it's the cutest thing uh, ever but I think the three-year-old and the hundred-year-old can pray you don't need special gifts or talents you don't need special curriculum you don't need money you don't need education you don't, you don't need any you just you just pray. You ask. And that's what's so amazing about the early church is, is they didn't have anything, right? They, they had the Holy Spirit, you know? I mean, there was no, no, no together for the gospel. There was no desiring God. There's no John Piper, no Tim Keller, no curriculum, right? No websites, no anything. And yet, yet this church was, was vibrant and reaching all kinds of people because I think sometimes we're always looking for the latest gadget or the latest trick rather than getting on our knees and just saying, God, please be God and do what you do. So I think that's, that's one of the implications for us as, as we kind of land the plane in Colossians is that, that, that are we a, a, a praying church that if we want to see the mission of God go forth, we want to see people can actually confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord of everything. Prayer has to be part of that. And I'll, I'll go a little quicker on the next couple, but there's also a sense of this, this very much a people-first ministry. Now, I want to say that with a caveat because you're just like, well, isn't it about God? Well, yes, it is about God. We, we assume that's Father, Son, Spirit. But, but flowing into that is Paul mentions all the names of these people because the ministry is implemented by means, and those means ultimately are people. Right? It's not magic. That, that, that Paul is writing and saying, hey, remember the, these faithful brothers and sisters. Just remember the, what they did. Remember how they pray for you. Remember how they've worked hard for you. God, in his grace and his sovereignty, by his spirit, is still using the means of people to, to make sure that the mission continues to go forth. Now, it's not all about people, but it is about people. 
that we are a reflection of who God is, that we are ambassadors, that we are to be salt and light, we're to reflect him. But, but isn't it interesting, and I, I was thinking about this week, is, is that Paul obviously knew these people very, very well. In the churches that he planted, he knew them very, very well. I mean, I don't know who can even remember how to pronounce half these names, but here's Paul saying, remember this person, remember that person. He obviously spent absorbent amount of time with the people in Colossae, and all the churches he planted. If you go to Romans chapter 16, here's a great example of that. At the end, another personal greeting. I think Romans and, and uh, Colossians have the most important last uh, chapters of the, of the Bible when it comes to these final greetings and whatnot. I commend you to my sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. Um, if you keep going, greet uh, Prisca and Aquila. You keep going. Uh, greet my beloved. I can't say half of them. Uh, the Panias, uh, greet Mary, that's an easy one. Um, greet uh, Urbanus, greet Apellus, right? All these names. Greet Herodian, right? Greet Rufus, I mean, come on, great name. Greet Julia, Olympus, you name it. Like he can, one, pronounce all these names, but, but, but he, he knows who they are. He spent time with them, weeks, sometimes months, sometimes even years. It was a people-first ministry to say, it's not about the Apostle Paul. Yes, God has called me to be a missionary to the Gentiles, to make the gospel of grace known, yes and amen. But I need a team of people with me. I need gifted people with me. I need people that can, can be elders and be deacons and be city group leaders and, 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 and teach the kids and, and help mature and establish these churches. That's why I need Rufus and Julia and Mary. We need, we need them all. It's very much a people-first kind of, of ministry. And I think it's, it's easy in our day, especially, we're always looking for that, that, that weird gadget or the magic curriculum or you know, some new technology that's going to kind of solve all the problems in the church and reach more people and make us relevant. And there's nothing wrong with, with technology or, or curriculum or anything like that. But one of our, our values as a church, uh, oh, is a family to my right, right here, is that we always use, and I use this question, what if we actually began to see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, like part of our extended family? What would be the implications for discipleship and mission if we actually said, that's my brother and sister, I should care as much about their soul and their needs as much as my own? What would that look like? And that's why we, we do ministry the way that, that we do. That's why we, we, we believe in small groups and city groups and, and getting together and spending time together. Because what if I, I actually got in the lives of my brothers and sisters and didn't just come to church on Sunday and went home and didn't talk to anyone? Because we believe discipleship happens best in community and together with all the different gifts and all the different talents being used together. Because I don't think you can mass produce discipleship and Christ-likeness. I just don't think you can. I don't think you can, can become a disciple of Jesus by just watching YouTube videos about your favorite pastor or internet church that's becoming a thing. I don't know how you can be faithful to the commands God's given us in the scriptures, like using your gifts. Like if you don't use your gifts, this church isn't going to be healthy and isn't going to be mature as it could be. It's going to be divided. But if you're you know, in the basement in your underwear watching church on the internet, well, how, how do you engage with your brothers and sisters? How do you build them up? How do you encourage them if you're never together? So Paul had a very much a, a people-first kind of, of ministry that, that you can't mass shepherd people in. And it's, it's also, I think, another thing that we always say that, man, we'd, we'd love to, to plant like 20 churches of 100, not just one church of 2,000. 
Because I, I think you can shepherd and, and care for and disciple and build up people in more effective ways by simply saying, and again, God gives the growth and we can't control all that. I know that. This is not a knock on big church, small church. Don't, don't hear me say that. But what I'm saying is that there's a very much a people-centric reality to Paul's ministry. He labored and prayed and spent time with individuals and communities for, for weeks and months and years and knew them by name. So people first. I, I think there's also a third one that's, that's really a, very similar, but, but it's what, what I'll call an empowered, gift-based kind of, of ministry. That everything didn't revolve around Paul, which is very I mean, he's like, hey, guys, I'm in prison, so you're going to have to figure this out. I mean, he never said it that way. But, but that's why he's, he's encouraging them, right? I mean, it's kind of like your ministry kind of goes down the tubes when you're in prison. You're just like, well, I'd love to preach on Sunday, but I, I kind of have a, an appointment. Um, in the cafeteria with some really gross food. It wasn't like that. But So he knew that, that there's all these gifts in the body. There's all these, the, 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 these talents that, that God wants to use to, to further his cause and further uh, the church and help it become mature and help it be, 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 be rooted and healthy. So, so what does he, he, he says, you know, in verse, uh, if you go back to, to Colossians, you know, verse 7, he's talking about you know, the faithfulness of this brother, this servant, Tychius. That he was there to build them up, to encourage them. We see Onesimus, he, again, another faithful, beloved brother, obviously gifted to, 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 to engage with this church, to help them, encourage them, and, and, and help them be healthy and strong. We, we mentioned Epaphras already, that he's a, some kind of prayer warrior. He wants to see the will of God known in the lives of people. He's struggling. He's laboring for them. He worked hard for them in verse 13. We see this, this Nympha character who, who's, who's planting a church. Um, don't know if it's a man or a woman, but in, in maybe a, a woman in her house. So there's some ministry happening in their house. Maybe she has some hospitality gifts. We don't know. But you see, there's all these beautiful gifts that God gives to the church. It's never meant to be about a pastor or the guy who has the lapel mic or the face mic. That's actually where churches go to die. And I hate talking about myself, but I'll do it because I know myself the best. But I've worked really hard. I don't do it perfectly, but I've worked really hard to make sure that this church is not built around me. Like, we don't need a bus that says Ryan Pelton Ministries. We just don't, with a nice suit and shiny teeth. But I've worked really hard to, to say, I, I believe that there's gifts and abilities and talents, and I, and I want to empower you to do those things. Like, everything, I don't have all the gifts, just so you know. And if you hang around me, you know that you have like, you have like one and a half <laughs> on a good day. But to say, you're gifted, you have talents and abilities to serve this body, it's not just me or any one elder, or any one staff. That, that's hard, right? Because, I mean, I, I'm a sinful human in process. Like, there's times I believe I can do things better than you. But it's kind of like when you raise your kids. Um, I don't know if you're in this stage, but um, doing the dishes is a nightmare, teaching a young kid how to do that. You're going to have some broken dishes. Um, and they're not going to put them in the right way. But would you rather be patient and say, okay, Noah, Owen, not Bennett yet. He's he's a wild card, but um, <laughs> don't worry about that kid. Um, or I can go get out of the way. Let me do it. 
I can do it. I've been doing dishes for 40 years, kid. Let me show you how to do this, right? That's easy. Or I can say, okay. Oh, backwards. Oh, yeah, cups, sippy cups can't go in the bottom because they will melt and catch fire. <laughs> but just let them figure it out, right? We, we, <laughs> I'm going to make fun of you, Blaine. Um, we, we, <laughs> not, we, I, I let a lot of people preach in this pulpit maybe before they're ready, not you, Blaine. Why? Because they're in process. It'd be easier for me to say, you know what? I just want all A++++ people. No one's going to get a chance. It's really, really hard, but I think Paul shows us that this is how the church is healthy. This is how the church is built up. This is how the church goes forth. Paul himself writes about these same gifts in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 4. I love these verses. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. He says if you're a believer in Christ, you have a gift. Why? For the common good of this church. It's not for us to hoard. And man, I, I see those gifts all the time, and you do too. When we have a city group setting, you can see all the gifts, the hospitality gifts, the teaching gifts, right? I mean, the guy's like, hey, let me tell you about the Greek word. of It's like, oh, geez, one of those guys. But sometimes that's just a gift. Or the one who's always praying about lost people. Maybe he has a gift of evangelism. And it's like, when I was a young believer, I, I just was so annoyed with the church. because I'm just like, what are we doing to reach non-Christians? Anything? And I would just be angry. And I remember I had an elder, and I was very immature and very young, still am, but he, he brings me aside and he just goes, Ryan, you just have a gift that's trying to get out. What? Yeah. So stop being so angry. <laughs> Calm down. But, but let's help you, empower you to, 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 to do that, right? To think about those that aren't part of the body yet. And maybe that's why I'm, I ended up being a church planner. I don't know. But, but, but see, that's the, that's the reality. We have all these gifts and talents and abilities and, and things. And Paul knew that and he saw that and he encouraged that. And he brought that out of people to say that this is for the common good of this body. We need everyone in the game. From the youngest to the oldest. Everyone gets to play a part. And I think, when I really go back to Colossians, when I, if you remember weeks and weeks and weeks ago, but the first part of the, the chapter, Paul gives this prayer and he gives this thanksgiving in Colossians 1. He says, you know, he thanks God for the Father, our Lord Jesus. We pray for you since we heard of your faith, um, your love for all the saints, your, the hope that was laid up for you. Then he prays in verse 9 that we would not cease praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I think what Paul is doing there is to say, this is what the calling of all of leaders are, elders, pastors, deacons, is to say, the reason we gather in, in city groups, the reason we gather on Sundays, the reasons we have men's ministry and women's ministry, the reasons we have, we have service teams and justice team and, and all these these different ministries, is ultimately so that we can awaken 
faith and love for the saints and hope. That we can pray like Paul and say we, we want our people to walk in a, in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's not to manipulate people, it's not to coerce people, but it's simply to, to, to lay before them and pray for them that God would do that work that only God can do in the heart and in the soul. Like, we have no control of people coming to Christ. We just don't. But God uses means, of course. He uses preaching, uses the gospel, uses the spirit. He uses all kinds of means. Like, we, we want to create the means and the avenues for those to happen, but we got to pray like crazy that God shows up and does what only God can do. I can't make you love Christ. Like, isn't it funny, um, I remember years ago, John, Jonathan Edwards had this, this analogy about honey, and he, he says, you know, we know that honey's sweet, but until you actually taste the honey, you don't really experience it. Like, you can try to describe all day long the sweetness and the, the flavors of honey, right? It's kind of like when you go on a, on a family vacation and you're trying to explain to everyone, showing them pictures, like, you should have been there, it was really awesome, like, we're on the Grand Canyon, I looked over, and I almost fell in, and they're just like, yeah, that's cool but it's when you actually experience it that it kind of changes everything. Anybody staying over the Grand Canyon? Yeah, amazing. But, you know, you can describe it all day. You can, you can describe that Jesus is God and that he's love and he's truth and he's merciful and he's kind and he's good. And I can kind of use all the language that I can, but until the Holy Spirit actually begins to work and awaken faith in someone, it's just like, oh, that's cool. But see, God uses all the gifts empowers people in the church for those things to happen in the lives of people. And then four and five, very similar, but, but four is just encouraged and supported ministry, very similar to three. That Paul was a supporter of gospel ministry, not only in the churches that he planted, and the people that he directly influenced. But notice what he, he says in, um, I mentioned already just in, in brief, but um, in verse um, 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. There's this kind of circular letter thing happening. And he wants to make sure that, that the church that's receiving the letters encouraged, but he also wants to make sure that this letter gets passed to another letter to another church so they're encouraged, and then, then the letter that they have, that it comes back to you so that you can be encouraged. And so everything that, that Paul was doing is that he wanted to make sure that the, these ministries were encouraged and they were supported, right? That we support ministry in India, we support ministry in, in, in northern Ontario, right? How can we send notes to people and just say, hey, I'm praying for you, I'm encouraging you? How can we send notes, text messages, emails, whatever you're, you're into, Facebook, direct messages, Twitter, whatever, smoke signals, whatever, whatever you are into? How, how can we just say, hey, hey, brother, hey, sister, I just want to encourage you today. Keep, keep on going. Keep on going. I know it can be hard. I know it's up and down, but keep on going. I want to support you. I want to encourage you in the work that God has called you to do. And I don't, I don't mean just missionaries and evangelists and church planners and, and all that. I'm just talking about the guy who works a job and is a Christian that just desperately wants to be salt and light wherever God has placed him. How can we encourage those folks? How can we encourage them? And Paul was a master at that. 
just the broader church, the network of churches that he planted. He was just constantly making sure, hey, I can't wait to come and visit you so that I can encourage you, so that I can preach this gospel of grace again, so that you'll know again these promises that are yours, that you would hold on to them. And then lastly, I'm going to call it a single-minded ministry or a single-mindedness ministry. So Paul ends his letter, verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. Remember, as I said earlier, the chains are not a pity party. It's to say, because of my single-mindedness, because of seeking the kingdom first and wanting to make Christ known, I'm in chains. It's because of him that I'm in, in chains. And I, I'm not begrudging that one iota because I see the work that is going. Remember how we started Colossians in chapter 1 that I just read a couple minutes ago? Paul is, is thanking God, praising God. Look at your faith. Look at your, your love. Look at the hope. Look at you understanding the grace of God that's coming to you. He's so excited. Look at all that God is doing among you. I'm in prison, and all these people are with you, and they're supporting you and encouraging you and walking with you. It doesn't even matter that I'm in prison. It's do, God is doing exactly what he promised that he would do, that he would build his church, and not even the gates of hell would come against it. And this, this kingdom that is unshakable, that is eternal, that God is saying nothing, doesn't matter what's going on in the culture, doesn't matter what's going on in your life, it doesn't matter what year you live in, God's kingdom will not be shaken. It will not stop because God is the king and God is eternal. And none of us in this room are apostles. Hopefully you know that. But we're all called to seek the kingdom first. That in the variety of gifts that we have, the, 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 the opportunities God gives us, we're all called to be salt and light. We're all called to be ambassadors for Christ. And that's going to look different for everyone. Like, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And that's what I, I, I find so astounding with this encouragement at the end of Colossians, is he's saying, look at all these different people and the different ways that they serve the church. And I see that in our midst, too, which I'm so encouraged by. And unfortunately, which I hate, is the one who stands on the stage gets a lot of the, the accolades because it's more obvious. But I love just seeing the way women leaders lead other women and men leaders lead other men and people who don't want to be recognized and don't, Brian Sergey, and uh, who cook food endlessly and beautifully, large, massive portions and quantities. You must know your pastor well. A lot of bacon. And elders who pray and visit people and encourage people and, and people that, hey, I, I need a crib and they, get, they find a crib or need their house painted and they get their house painted. Whatever it is, that has nothing to do with me. And it's all about the kingdom. It's all about how can I serve God's people? How can I serve my world? All the prayers that are offered that never get noticed. And Paul had a single-mindedness to say, what can I do to ensure that the gospel is known, that Jesus is known in our midst? So just a couple questions, New City. How is our prayer life? How is yours individually? How can we do better collectively? Are we praying for open doors for the gospel? Do we pray like these disciples? This is a priority in our lives. 
do we embody a, a people-first nature of gospel ministry? Is it, is it about people or is it about programs and structures and efficiency and money and all that stuff? Or do we know the people sitting across from us? Do we see them as our brothers and sisters in Christ? And if, if you're my family, that, that any good family would say, hey, how, how can I help you with that? How can I encourage you in that? I know you're having a hard time right now. How can I walk with you? How can I build you up somehow? How are we involving others in our ministries? So ladies' ministry, men's ministry, city group ministry, whatever. Are we empowering other kids' ministry, you name it, justice ministry? Are we, are we inviting others in? Or are we trying to hold everything on ourselves and be everything to everyone? Are we saying, hey, there's, there's gifts in this body. There's, there's talent in this body. How, how can we encourage them that way and put them in places to serve and serve well? How are we giving ministry away? How can we encourage our brothers and sisters in their faithfulness and hard work for the things of, of the gospel and, and God. And what does that look like? For the man or woman who goes to work on Monday, how can we encourage them to be salt and light wherever they're found? Or someone who's leading a ministry or someone, maybe one of our church planters that we support or, or, or what, what have you. How can I encourage people in that way? And then are we single-minded in the cause of Christ in our church and world? Is that at the end of the day? And that doesn't mean, hey, we need to quit our jobs and I'll be evangelists and I'll be church planners. Most of us aren't called to that. But, but undergirding my family life and undergirding my work life and undergirding all relationships, is there a sense that I want to seek the kingdom first? That in the end, I want Christ to be known. And, and really, the first place you start, if you do have a family or you, you know, have a home or, or whatever, or you have relationships, it really just starts right in that little inner circle. First and foremost, I want my kids to love Jesus and realize their dad is a desperate sinner who needs the grace of God every day. And then flowing out from there to all these different opportunities and relationships and neighbors, and right? I mean, again, it, it doesn't mean you, you don't have to be the one on the street corner with the bullhorn. I don't recommend that anyway. But it's going to look, it's going to take on different shapes and sizes. It could be just you. That's what I love about prayers, that you can get on your knees this afternoon and just ask God to be God on behalf of someone else. But is there a, a single-mindedness in these things? Now, I want to read a quote that I found very uh, encouraging this week. That as Paul lands the plane of Colossians, it began with grace and it ends with grace. I don't want you to hear like, geez, that seems like a lot. Um, but all of it is girded by, by grace. He opens Colossians, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father. And then he ends Colossians with, remember my chains, grace be with you. I don't think that's insignificant at all. The whole thing is grace. I hear this quote from Lancelot Ridley, because that's an awesome name. Grace from first to last. Last of all, Paul desires the grace of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ to be always present with his readers. He began this letter by desiring the grace of God for them, and how he ends his letter is this in the same fashion. This signifies that without the grace of God, we can begin no good work, nor yet finish it well, but by the grace of God, which would have everyone saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. To God the Father and to the Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, be all honor and glory now and forever little snippet from Lancelot Ridley's sermon about 500, 600 years ago. The whole thing's grace. It's not on us. 
it's not our willpower, it's not even our own gifts, but, but any growth God gives, any opportunity God gives, it's grace upon grace. And Paul knew that full well. He knew that anything accomplished in his life was not because Paul was so gifted or so talented, but it was all God's grace. And that same grace is what energized him and kept him going. And every week we have an opportunity to see that tangibly in the Lord's Supper. The broken bread and the cup are pictures of grace. That God did something for us we couldn't do for ourselves. That he sent his son to break his body and to shed his blood atoning for our our sins. And so when we, we take the supper every week, we're just it's a it's a grace nourishing meal. That's what it's supposed to be, is to remind us that we're not the way we should be. We had probably horrible weeks and didn't love God with all our hearts, minds and souls. We didn't love our neighbors as we should. And so we come here and we say, Thank you, God, for the grace and mercy that's extended to me. And as you eat that, remember that. Because I know if I hear all those lists and questions and things, I get kind of I feel a little bit guilty. I didn't, I, I'm not doing so hot in these areas. But then I come to the table and I say, thank you for Jesus who came and did what I couldn't do in myself. And so we cling to him. If there's any sin, if there's any idolatry, if there's anything that, that you just need to lay before God that you know is real and present, he's faithful to forgive. Paul would say, just examine yourself and lay those things down. If there's a relationship that needs mending, please do that. And then come freely and receive the grace of God. We break off a piece of the bread, we dip it in the cup, there'll be two lines in the front. If you have any um, allergies of any kind, there's some gluten-free, nut-free, I'm not sure it's bread, but there's something there that you can take. And if you're not a Christian, we want you to be. Because we realize there comes a point in your life, you get to the end of yourself and you realize that we don't have it all together, that we need grace, we need mercy, we need forgiveness. And we're not as strong as we think we are. We're not as smart as we think we are. And we need God's mercy and grace every single moment of our lives now and for eternity. We have some prayers in the city life. We'd love for you to think on those. If you want to talk more with me about that, I'd love to chat with you as well. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you for Colossians. Thank you for the few months we could be in it together as a church. I pray you'll help us be hearers of the word, but also doers. And God, be, help us be men and women and children who marvel at the grace that has come to us. Let us marvel at the mercies that have been poured out, Father, by your Son and by your Spirit. And help us walk in a manner worthy of you. Help us be men and women and children of prayer. Help us bring out the gifts and abilities and talents of others. Help us encourage our brothers and sisters where they need encouragement. And thank you for New City Church, all that you're doing here. It is all grace. And so we're thankful. Help us be faithful in that. Help us be humble in that. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.